You're now tuned into the Jew3 Project podcast. I'm your host, as always, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And if you've been listening, you know we're on a series, Scandal, How to Get Away with Sexuality. And on this week, um, we've we've in the past weeks, we've been looking at, you know, Scandal and um, How to Get Away with Murder. And, you know, we talked about with Morgan, the first episode is gay-friendly TV. The second episode, we talked with um, Preston Sprinkle about is it really a sin? What does the Bible really say about homosexuality? The third episode, we talked uh, with biologist Rashida Likely about whether science has proven that um, people are born gay. And this week, we're going to talk to Dr. Sean McDowell and discuss um, same-sex marriage. Um, Welcome, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for um, being on here with us. Um, so, Sean, tell uh, the Jew3 listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, sure. First off, I've been married to my high school sweetheart for 15 years. We have three kids. A son. I have a son who's 11, a daughter who's 8, and then a son who's 2 and a half. I live in Southern California, and my, my passion is in particular in the world of apologetics, just helping Christians know what they believe, why they believe it, and in particular how we pass that on to the next generation. So I teach at Biola University full-time. I get to speak, write, and uh, come on a cool podcast like this. <laughs> well, thank you. That's uh, amazing and um, a great story, especially you and your wife been married 15 years. That's awesome. Um, so, Sean, I know you have a book um, where you talk about this issue. What made you interested in writing the book? I think the book is Same-Sex Marriage, and you wrote it with um, John Stone Street. Yep, that's right. You know, Lisa, I started writing this book in the middle of doing my dissertation. In 2013, uh, there was a Windsor decision before the Supreme Court that essentially struck down DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. Mm-hmm. And my experience is looking online, talking to Christians. There's so many Christians that felt deflated. They felt like we've lost. In fact, my co-author had a youth pastor say to him, he said, this issue is done. We have lost, like with this sense of despair. <laughs> so it's a bad idea to take on another writing project in the middle of the dissertation. But I felt like there wasn't any book that was written that made a biblical and non-biblical case for the importance and sanctity of marriage as one man and one woman in a committed relationship for life in a way that was fair, that wasn't hateful, that was respectful, and also for the non-specialists. So I really did it to just encourage, strengthen, and inspire Christians in their own life to understand what marriage is and lovingly, graciously stand up for marriage as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and for... As far as the feedback for the book, um, what's been the primary feedback as it relates to couples who people who do struggle with homosexuality? You know, I was on a radio show, Family Life, a probably two weeks ago it aired and uh, a, a lady wrote in who had some significant same sex attraction issues, also transgender issues and was kicked out of her church kicked out of her home, just a painful, painful life. And she wrote in to just say, as she heard us on the radio show, she said, where were Sean and John when I was younger and struggling with my sexuality? Somebody who would hold firm to the biblical teaching and yet speak it with tenderness and compassion 
and love. And when she wrote that in, I mean, my heart just broke for how many young people who have struggled with same-sex attraction and don't feel, you know, kind of loved in the right way. Mm-hmm. And, and yet also her response of just kind of saying, man, thanks for teaching what Jesus taught and what Paul's taught, not watering it down is one of the big responses we've got. Now, certainly we've had people, I get plenty of tweets, plenty of emails, people just hating on me. And that, that's fine. That's a part of it. I expect that. But as a whole, I think most people, if you make a case thoughtfully and in a careful way, are really willing to listen if you treat them with respect. And that's how far our book has been welcomed. I expected a ton of one stars on Amazon, but I, last I checked, it was like four and a half stars, which surprised me for a book on such a controversial <laughs> subject. That's amazing. So what do you think the strongest case for um, defining marriage between a man and a woman? Is it obviously it's Genesis, but do you think there's, you said there's obviously the biblical component and then the non-biblical component? Yeah, this is, this is important. When I'm talking to Christians, of course, I'm going to go to Genesis. I'm going to go to passages like Romans 1. I'm going to go to passages like Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, which I think lay out a consistent case of what marriage is. And we could come back to that if you want to. But it's important to be able to make a case for marriage in a society which does not hold the Bible up as the inspired word of God. Mm-hmm. So I, I often put it this way, Lisa. I don't with, with non-believers. I don't reason from the Bible. I reason to the Bible. Mm-hmm. So if the Bible affirms that life begins at conception, then we're going to find that in nature. If the Bible affirms that marriage is between a man and a woman, we're going to find that that's the best natural institution for society and for the raising of kids. And that's in fact what we find. So John and I, my co-author, we quote a, a, a kind of an outspoken advocate for marriage named Maggie Gallagher, and she just makes a couple points. She says, number one, society needs babies. Number two, sex makes babies. And number three, babies need a mom and a dad. Mm -hmm. And it seems so simple, but if you look at these one by one, society needs babies. This is absolutely right. We're seeing in places like Japan and certain parts of Europe, their civilization crumbling because they're not having enough replacement of kids. Mm-hmm. So society has chosen to be interested in the marriage relationship in a way it hasn't with tennis partners or with neighbors because it's the very institution in which children come from. So society is interested in the production, for lack of a better term, of kids, but also the healthy development of kids. Now, the second point is that sex makes babies. Now, you and I might laugh at that and think it's obvious, but a friend of mine was in a in a debate with somebody who was much more to the left of her on a college campus. And and my friend said, well, we all know that babies come from a mom and a dad. And her opponent said, no, they don't. And she kind of stopped and was stunned and said, well, what do you mean? She said, no, babies come from failed contraception. <laughs> <laughs> can, you, wow. can you imagine that, Lisa, that the whole world view was we've gone to such lengths in the sexual revolution to divorce sex from making babies that people actually think that sex is not a child bearing act, even if a child doesn't come from it. So sex by itself is a child bearing act. We can't separate that. And then sociologically, the third point is that kids need a mom and a dad. Kids need a mom and a dad. I just read a blog this week from a girl who grew up with two moms 
And she said, I loved my two moms. They cared for me. They watched over me. I'm not resentful for them at all. But I have a deep wound in my heart from not having a daddy. Kids, there's something unique a mom brings, and there's something unique that a dad brings. And even studies show, Lisa, it's amazing. I'm holding a book in my hand called Do Fathers Matter by Paul Rayburn with Scientific American. It came out last year. He's not a Christian. And he says, for years, the assumption in sociological research was that kids really need a connection with a mom. And dad was just there to provide physical and financial security. He says, now all the research is showing that for the healthy development of a child, they need that love and intimate connection with a father. And you know what? I think everybody really knows the kids need a mom and a dad. Even our president has said, he said, kids need a father and they need a mother in their life. And I applaud him for taking that stand. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's very important, I, especially um, we primarily, our audience is primarily the African-American demographic. And we could see um, the problems um, in inner cities and in the urban core of fatherlessness. Um, there's some, obviously, some socioeconomic issues that, you know, kind of perpetuate this in the urban core, but the problems that it's creating with um, teenagers, with children not knowing their fathers. Um, so we can already tell just from that, that fathers are, are important. Even if you don't look at the research, you could just look in your backyard or <laughs> inner city neighborhoods to see that what the lack of fathers, the problems that it creates. Um, it gives a lack of direction. And then even in, I guess, it's just this generation, fatherlessness is becoming more and more prevalent with broken homes in, in whatever um, race you fall into. Well, Lisa, I applaud you for, for making that point. I think it's right. It's a, it's a human issue, fatherlessness, not a racial issue. I'm, I'm holding in my hands a study I just got called Families and Faith, How Religion is Passed Down Across Generations. By Vern Begston, and it's a 35-year study by Oxford Press, and they want to know what are the factors that shape faith transmission from one generation to the next. You know what they show was the number one factor. They said a warm relationship with the father, mm-hmm. a warm relationship with the father. So hands down, kids of any race, any socioeconomic status with a warm relationship with the father are less likely to get into trouble, more likely to do well in school, and more likely to have a high self-image. And it's not just what happens is people say, okay, well, you can be in some kind of divorced relationship as long as you develop that relationship with the dad, and that's important. And I praise those in divorced relationships who still are willing to build those relationships. But just today, I was reading a quote by John Wooden, the great basketball coach, probably of all time. And he said, the greatest gift that a a father can give to his kids is to love their mother. That is so powerful. So yes, kids need a mom and they need a dad, but they need those mom and dad to love and care for each other, to model for them what it means to live and survive in our society and to flourish into the next generation. That's powerful. Um, Moving from the family dynamic I guess, what do you say to those who experience same-sex attraction and are struggling with the fact, I will never have a family because I'm not attracted at all to the opposite sex? 
um i i have no attraction i have a friend who who actually struggles with homosexuality and he said that the idea of a woman actually being intimate with a woman actually makes him want to throw up but he wants a family how do, how do you kind of deal with that in light of saying that you know marriage is between a man and a woman so if you don't if you aren't attracted to a woman you can't have a family well i would say a couple things first off i would say you know if somebody shared with me that way and i've had people share that with me i'd say man thank you for being willing to share something so intimate and personal to you those are good desires that god has placed inside of you i mean life is about relationship and loving and caring for people there's no question about that so the desire in any man and any woman for family and for relationship shows that we are made in the image of God. And these are healthy, good desires. But God has also given us certain boundaries and certain kind of standards in which those relationships are meant to be expressed and meant to be lived out. Well, sometimes I've had people say to me, well, I don't have you know, I don't have attraction for the opposite sex, so I'm doomed for celibacy for my life if I can't do this and I want to follow the biblical pattern. And I, I would say a couple things to this. I'd say, number one, celibacy often gets a bad rap. Now, I know people are out there going, well, here's a guy who's been married 15 years, his high school sweetheart. Who is he to talk? Well, I'm not speaking from my own authority. I'm speaking from the person of Jesus, from the person of Jeremiah, the person of Paul, from John the Baptist fully actualized human beings who are celibate, but also people like Wesley Hill, who just wrote a book called Spiritual Friendships, where he talks about the power of friendship of the same sex and of the opposite sex that are friends that have no sexual component that are deeply fulfilling and meaningful. In fact, I was just reading a book last week called um, Gay and Catholic, and the author described how certain kind of relationships and living communities that she has had at times with other people that give you a sense of community, a deep sense of relationship and commitment to each other that meet the needs that humans have for that kind of fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Second, the, the other thing I would say is I have a good number of personal friends with same-sex attraction who have been involved and are still involved in healthy opposite sex marriage relationships and families. And they would have told me at some time, they would have said when they were younger, there's no chance I'd be attracted to some of the opposite sex. It makes me sick. No way. And then many of them through prayer and through time and through honesty. I think if somebody keeps their same attraction under wrap and then tries to get married, that's a recipe for disaster. But the people who've come out with openness, with honesty, with accountability, found very significant, meaningful family relationships. In fact, I would actually use the word very redemptive relationships. So I don't think somebody's doomed to just be lonely if they want to follow the biblical pattern for marriage and relationships. I think there's human relationships we can have outside of that. I think celibacy in itself was a powerful, Paul describes it as a gift to the church. And then second, there's actually been a show on TLC about Mormons with same-sex attraction who get married and have families and have kids. I'm not endorsing everything on the show, but there are many people who find a way to just have a real-life attraction to somebody of the opposite sex and have meaningful meaningful marriages even when they have same-sex attraction. 
and I think that's a um a point that a lot of people miss is that um when we talk about marriage we don't get to set the rules our desires aren't um the parameters for marriage God's desires are and because I think the culture has trained us to live based off our feelings it's created a problem in how we process what marriage is um what's the purpose and goal of marriage and just who sets the overall rules um for marriage do you would you agree with that Lisa I am so glad that you brought this up. I do agree with you this because really what's happening in our culture right now is there are two competing ideas of what marriage is about. One is that marriage is kind of this subjective institution that we can change, we can adapt, we can make it whatever we want it to be. And it's really just about my soul fulfillment as an individual. As long as I find my soulmate and I'm happy, then I can have, you know, then marriage is fine. Well, if you buy into the idea, a few ideas actually, if you buy into the idea that marriage is not about kids, that marriage is just about my soul fulfillment being happy, then of course, same-sex marriage makes perfect sense. But if there's actually something called marriage outside of you and outside of me, and we don't have the right to change it, then we need to conform our lives to that standard, whether we feel like it or not. So a friend of mine says, he says, you can eat an ashtray, but that doesn't make it food. <laughs> so we can call a man and a man or three women or a man with four women. We can call that marriage. But just because we call it that and give a marriage license doesn't mean it's actually marriage. So the key question here is, and I'm amazed how many people miss it. The key question is, what is marriage. And we can't call people hateful until we first answer what marriage is. Because if marriage is a permanent exclusive union between a man and a woman, then it's not hateful to say that you're against same-sex marriage. That actually be the loving right thing to do. Now, on the flip side, if marriage is just kind of a committed relationship between two or more people, then maybe it is discriminatory and hateful to say that that same people with same sex people of the same sex cannot get married. So we have to answer the question first, what is marriage and where authority lies before we can call people discriminatory, before we can claim inequality, before we can call people hateful. So if somebody would walk up to you and say, uh, Sean, what is marriage? What would be your your answer? Well, believe it or not, Lisa, when somebody asks me a question like that, I typically ask a few questions back. Okay. I, I want to know why somebody's asking me this question. I want to know where they're coming from. And I want to help that person think critically about it rather than just give an answer. Here is what marriage is. Mm -hmm. So I would probably try to have a conversation and I would genuinely listen and I would try to understand where the person's come from. I wouldn't just say, here's what marriage is and, and you're wrong. That's not how I operate. But if you're asking me for definition, I would say marriage is a permanent exclusive union between a man and a woman that has the intent of having children. Okay. That's okay. what marriage is. And then what would the, I was reading a critique the other day um, of a book and one of the critiques was, this was a book 
about um a christian it was a christian author who was defending um marriage between um, the traditional view of marriage and one of the critiques was well what about women who can't produce children um you know there's in in the man and woman relationship some people are barren or the the husband might actually have problems does that mean their marriage is purposeless that's a great question in fact this has come up in some of the supreme court discussions over the nature of marriage and here's a distinction that i would make in my definition i said marriage is an institution that has the orientation or the intent of having children so sex between a man and a woman is a child-bearing act, even if a child does not result from it. Sex between a man and a man and a woman and a woman is by definition infertile. It can't even possibly by its very nature produce a child. So I heard an analogy one time that said the purpose of football is to score touchdowns and win a game. Well, if you have a game and nobody scores a touchdown and it's a tie – it doesn't mean you weren't playing the game of football. Mm -hmm. It just means that its intent was not fulfilled. So somebody who is infertile, and I actually read a study recently that said when couples are infertile, 40% of the time it's the man. It's we People tend to blame the woman. That's not always the case. It can go either way. They're still having a childbearing act by that sexual union which is what makes something a marriage. In fact, that's what the Bible talks about in terms of one flesh. Mm-hmm. It's, what's amazing, you don't even need the Bible to argue this, is what I think is tied to a marriage is that if you look at your body or my body, each one of us as male and female can have every single natural function produced as an individual, whether it's our respiratory system or the musculatory system or the excretory system, all the systems in our body can work as individuals. But there's one system in which males have half and females have the other. Mm-hmm. And, it's re- and it's reproduction. And it's like a lock and a key designed to work together to become a one flesh union with the orientation of producing kids, even if a child does not actually result from it. Does that make sense? Uh-huh. It's almost saying that when you define when you make your own rules for marriage you um you kind of remove purpose and only um shoot for pleasure so god has a purpose for marriage but when you create your own rules you're basing it off pleasure and you're kind of substituting uh pleasure for purpose in a sense and then you kind of if you add children to it um you're you're it's still you're still using pleasure as the primary basis but god has purpose before pleasure kind of like i like the football analogy because it's kind of showing hey there's a purpose for the game people are supposed to score but there's pleasure in the game for the players but the primary purpose is to win or to score but that doesn't mean within that purpose there's not pleasure yeah, I think that's well stated. I think biblically, there's three purposes for sex. One is procreation to make babies, number which is Genesis one. Number two is unity, Genesis two, and then number three is pleasure, Song of Solomon or Proverbs chapter five. Mm-hmm. So 
all of those are a part of the sexual union, and you don't really even need the Bible to tell you that. <laughs> but by its very nature, the sexual act is a procreative act. And it's that union that even societies throughout the history of the world have recognized that a man and a woman commit to each other. And then it's during that sexual union that that commitment is solidified, so to speak. And the Bible teaches that. But even just reflecting historically, reflecting on the nature of men and women, reflecting upon childbirth and societies, we come to that same conclusion naturally that this marriage relationship is different from other kinds of relationships. And the state has reason to sanction this relationship in a way that it does in others. I know one common um, question that I get a lot. Should Christians even fight it? Because you were talking about the youth pastor who's like, we've been defeated. Um, Should we just let it take place and not worry about it? Um, I I know actually some pastors in the African-American community um, have actually cited for the legalization of marriage and their argument is we won't we won't perform a marriage um we still think marriage is between a man and a woman but we're not under god's law in the united states we're under the constitution and so equal rights and since us as african americans were once oppressed by this same structure we should be on the side of the oppressed which I have a lot of issues with that because I don't think that skin color and sexuality are this. That's the same argument. Um, but the, what would you say to somebody who has taken that position? Well, I'm glad to hear you say that skin color and sexuality are distinct issues. I completely agree. There's never been any debate from any of the great thinkers that people of a different race can have a conjugal union, which is a marriage. There's never been any sophisticated debate about that. But it is new to introduce the idea of genderless marriage where all sudden gender doesn't matter. So really, we're comparing apples and oranges here by bringing race into the issue. Now, the pastor like that, I mean, if he really feels like the history of African-American people you know, he's he's been oppressed. I'm going to try to listen and understand where he's coming from and certainly show sympathy to him and try to grasp with somebody who's a roughly middle aged white guy. I probably haven't experienced that the same. So I'm certainly in my interaction with him going to try to have as much grace and understanding and willingness to listen as possible. But the reason I would not be in favor is I think the issues are completely different, even if I were not a Christian. I would still be in favor of natural marriage. My primary reason for being in favor of natural marriage is not because Genesis 1 or Matthew 19, although those are substantive to me. You see, Genesis 1 is not the creation of the Jewish or the Christian people. We don't have Abraham until Genesis chapters 11 or really Genesis 12 he shows up. It's the creation of everybody. Mm -hmm. Marriage has a value within itself, even within society. So there's actually, I mean, I've documented some, some gay rights advocates who are against redefining marriage because of the role that marriage understood as a man and a woman plays within culture itself. So I, 
so this pastor you shared, I think his his sentiment to side with those who are marginalized and those who feel oppressed, that's a good sentiment because we don't want power to crush and hurt people. But we also have to ask the bigger question, what is marriage? What's best for society? And frankly, some of my libertarian friends will push back to me and say, hey, you know, we're libertarian. People should be able to define for themselves. We're in favor of freedom, smaller government. And what I like to point out to them is I say, wait a minute. As marriage crumbles, the government is actually going to get bigger. So to my libertarian friends who think it's a good idea to support the redefinition of marriage, I want to say the more redefine marriage and the more we move away from man-woman as the norm, the more the government will step in and play the role that the family is meant to play. And in turn, I think we will actually lose more of our freedoms. I think that's that's a reasonable conclusion or <laughs> hypothesis. Um, <laughs> what what do you think the church has done wrong when addressing same-sex marriage? You know, in, in my book, Same-Sex Marriage, the first thing that John and I point out is we start off by saying as the church, rather than pointing fingers, we need to take a deep look inside at how we've treated people with same-sex attraction. And while as a whole, I know a lot of Christians, I think their heart and their intent is right. I think most Christians really do love people with same-sex attraction. I think we've fallen short in a lot of areas. I've been around too many people who tell jokes that are inappropriate about people with same-sex attraction, the way they talk about people on the other side. I think the first thing, instead of pointing fingers at others, we need to take an honest look in the mirror and just say, okay, are there times where we've demonized somebody of a different view? Are there times where we haven't treated everybody as being an image bearer made in the image of God? Are there times where we made fun of people? Are there times where as a church we have not been without compromising what we believe is true as loving and as caring and as compassionate as we could be? And I think we've fallen short of that. I mean, Jesus was a friend of sinners. He didn't compromise on calling things out as sin, and yet people – the tax collectors and prostitutes enjoyed being around Jesus because of something in his in his his heart and the way he treated people. And I don't think most people in our culture would say the same thing about Christians today. So I think we need to take a deep look inside and really just each one of us repent of wrong things we've said and wrong things we've done. Second thing was sometimes Christians have a tendency to just go to their own churches, to read their own books, to go to their own Christian schools and to not be in relationship with people of different views, one of the most rich things I've done in the past few years is try hard and work at relationships with people who see the world very differently than I do. I have friends who are atheists, friends who are Mormons. I have friends with same-sex attraction. Some consider themselves Christians. Some consider themselves not Christians. And what I found is that the rhetoric in our culture is that, boy, Christians are hateful, bigoted, intolerant. And the only way we will overcome that is when people hear that and their first thought is, gosh, that doesn't ring true. I have friends who are evangelical Christians. Gosh, they disagree with me. But they're so kind. They're so gracious. They're so generous that that label just doesn't seem to match up with reality. So to answer your question, Lisa, two things we need to do. Number one, just look in the mirror and honestly repent of anything we've said or done that has not been Christ-like. 
And second, step out of our comfort zones and build genuine, real relationships with people with a different worldview. So hopefully they can see the love of Christ in our lives. Amen. I agree. I think that one of the things, um, too, is that, you know, when people see someone different or obviously experiencing same sex attraction, they think immediately they have to say something about it. Um, And that's not always the case in relationships. You kind of let things develop. And, you know, if if it's necessary or if it comes up, but if that's what you lead with, you kind of create a wall. I'm so glad that you said that, because sometimes as Christians, we feel like we have to be the moral police and <laughs> tell people whenever they're doing something wrong. And it tends to be certain select sins, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, one of the things John and I point out in our book is we said it's not lost on the other side, that we're not holding rallies in Washington, D.C. against gossip or pornography. <laughs> True. We're not. We do kind of pick and choose our our sins. So I think you're right. And again, I'm so glad you said this because it actually says in 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13, it says, who am I to judge outsiders? <laughs> for, for what have I... What do I have to do with judging people on the outside? Is it not those within the church whom I am supposed to judge? God will judge those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So how we deal with Christians who say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and I think this is fine. There's a different manner for how we're supposed to deal with Christians, hence Matthew 18, than non-believers who don't even share our faith. I think we lead with grace. We lead with generosity. And then, like it says in First Peter 3.15, when somebody asks for the hope within, then we're ready with an answer. Yes. Yeah, yeah I agree. Well, I want to thank you, Sean, for um, being with us today. I think it's been a very good conversation. Um, I know I was blessed by it, and I hope our listeners were blessed by it as well. Is there anything you want to leave um, our Jude 3 listeners with? You know what? Thank you for having me. I would say, look, we're there's a lot of people who are afraid of what's going to happen in the Supreme Court right now. And people say, oh, my goodness, the debate is over. We might as well give up. Well, you know what? Jesus has still risen from the grave. <laughs> this has not caught God by surprise. Now is not the time to despair. In fact, one great leader I read said to despair in times like this is a sin. This is an opportunity for the church. This is an opportunity for us to build up marriage stronger than we ever have, to build relationships with non-believers, to follow Jesus, even when we see things happen in our culture that make us uncomfortable, especially when it deals with religious rights and freedom. So I would say to our listeners, I'd say, don't despair. This is an opportunity. May we get on our knees and humbly before God, repent of our sins, and then with love and with grace, embrace and engage a non-believing world that's what jesus did that's what paul did and that'll be the most effective way to reach our culture today i i agree thank you thank you sean and um again thank you for coming and being with us lisa it's, it's been a joy keep up the good work i thank god for what what you're up to Thanks for that encouragement, Sean. As always, you can listen to all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Jude3project, on Instagram at Jude3project, and on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Jude3project. And you can subscribe to us by um, 
going to iTunes and searching for the Jude 3 Project and our podcast should um, pop up or you could go to our website and there's a link on there as well. And be sure to tune in next week as we continue our series with Sam Alberry.